Matthew 8, and I'm actually going to move myself down here so I can have my snazzy lectern. I like to be a little bit closer to you guys when I'm talking, so. I'm in my brain, I'm thinking I can do this quick, but then I'm like, okay, you got to be realistic here, but I'm going to, I'm going to do my best. And I know you guys are like, oh, it doesn't matter. Talk three hours. We don't care. Right. Just get like, oh, I offended Adam. He left. It's like, no, dude, it's two in the afternoon. We got things to do. So you guys know that, you know, one of the things that we really try to emphasize and I try to teach and preach here is that you're going to go through some stuff as a Christian, right? I mean, Trent just, you know, expressed that in his testimony that when we come to the Lord, this doesn't mean that life's, you know, sunshine and rainbows, that all these things are going to be just good, smooth and, and, and plentiful and all of that, that we are living lives that are a decrease in self, a denial of self for an increase of Christ and choosing Christ. So when we live a life where it's, either my way or God's way, Jesus is what we'll go into and, and read. Jesus is saying, you need to pick up your cross daily and deny yourself. And every day we are encountered with these decisions and these choices. Are we not? It's either my way or it's this way that Christ is telling me in my spirit that I should go. And man, that way is a hard way a lot of the times. It's a struggle. Amen. Like it's something to where I know that this is what he's wanting me to do. But there's this side of me, this, this evil, this, this pride that's wanting me to do it this way and convincing myself that, that this actually my way is the best way. Only to come to find out, as all of us have in our life, that, man, I should have chose Christ's way, right? He lets us do this too. The Word says that He gives us up to these, these decisions, these desires, and these passions. Why? Because it does lead to a sense of destruction. But guess what? There's a discipline and a teaching component that's there and present. That reminds us that guess what we need to lean on him in those in those decisions and those choices but one of the things that i, I don't want to ever set in a sense of off balance is, is i don't want you to stop and think always as a christian which i i hope that i've, I've never given this imagery maybe that i have um that you're called to be poor when it comes to possessions and things. And, and I want to break this down for you. Scripture says that we're called to be poor in spirit. Amen? Like, we are called to know and, and recognize our depravity and our need for Christ. And in that teaching and that preaching, sometimes people may sit there and think like, okay, and we, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Okay, is, is Pastor Josh saying, he's explaining the word, that that means that all this stuff that I had, and I think we talked about it a couple months ago, does that mean that if, if I have money or if I have things, that in the name of Jesus, I need to go home and now set them all ablaze because they're, they're evil and they're wicked? No, I'm not saying that whatsoever. And I always want to make sure that I'm clear on that. That yes, Scripture does speak about and talk about this sense of poverty, especially when you look in the Lord's Day and the disciples, like they didn't have a lot. Like they were giving up a lot of stuff, right? And we're going to go into Scripture here and, and see what Jesus is even speaking about. But we want to make sure that we give the imagery of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what Jesus is really saying in these passages. So here in Matthew 8, 18 through 22, passage that, that many of you are, are familiar with here, Matthew 8, 18, it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders 
to cross to the other side of the lake. Verse 19 here, chapter 8 says, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, So this imagery right out the gate that we see, right? That in the world's sense, in the world's comfort, we can acquire ourselves a lot of stuff, right? But when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, is there a willingness, if it means to follow him, that we would give up everything. Even in the sense, this is real strong language here because even when you're looking at it in context, like family was huge, burials were huge and all that, a disciple came to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That just means what Jesus is teaching is, is in the sense of priority. We read in the scriptures, seek the kingdom first, right? That word seek means make first priority. Out the gate. There's no dispute, but there is a struggle. We can struggle with this. So what Jesus is really sitting here saying that at the end of the day, if it means your poverty, if it means that you have nowhere to lay your head, as the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, would you give it up for me? Would you live this life for me? Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we sit here and we, we wrestle with this because this is why I'm really big on making sure that you guys get the context of the gospel right. And we've talked about this the last few weeks about not just preaching Jesus as Savior, but we have to preach Jesus as Lord. And this is the reason why Jesus was killed. I've talked to you guys about this. He was killed because he was God. He wasn't someone that just loved someone recklessly and loved all these unlovable people. It was because he became a threat to individuals because when you declare yourself to being Lord, you're indirectly saying that you're deserving of their worship. You're deserving of their life. You're deserving of their comforts. And people love their comforts, right? So this was something that really exposed a lot. It was seen as blasphemy. But when we go out and we preach the gospel to people, and even hearing Trent speaking his testimony, t Trent's testimony is not the gospel. But what his testimony is, as many of all of our testimonies is, is it shows the mighty works of Jesus Christ this Savior, but also this Lord. Because I think you could hear in Trent's language, it wasn't that Jesus just saved him, but there is a submission component that had to take place in Trent's life and this relationship that he has developed with the Lord to where he's had to deny self. You see, we could go out and preach a gospel where we make Jesus just simply Savior. We talk about him as just simply saying, you are, you, you save people, you love us and all that. And we can be good. Yep. Sign me up for that. I need a savior. My sins are forgiven. This is phenomenal. This is great. I love this deal. What about his lordship? See, we're all going to enter into a kingdom. And who's the king of that kingdom? Jesus. We have a lot of people out there that are all about living in this kingdom but they don't give you-know-what about the king. So think about that. Why would we want to send anyone into a kingdom? Why would you want to enter into a kingdom if you're not about the king who sits on the throne of that kingdom? A question that I've asked people in the past, and it isn't to trip them up, but it's a place to put their hearts in a place, is, is 
We read in the scriptures that no one can really perceive what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be so glorious, so awesome, so amazing. Like no mind can really comprehend it, right? But it's going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. And one of the beauties of it is, is there's no more sin. There's no more sin. There's no more disease. There's no more death. Every tear and every eye will be wiped away. Awesome. Great news. Because I don't like wiping my tears. I don't like dealing with disease. Lord knows I don't like dealing with death. But a question that I pose to people is, is would you still be as excited about going to heaven if you knew that Jesus wasn't there? Let's say all these things were still to be promised. Let's say all this stuff was going to be present. But there would be no Jesus. There would be no King. And it's a great way for us not to stop and to condemn ourselves or to feel this sense of shame, but it's a great way for us to really position where our hearts and our motives are at with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about knowing and trusting in the promises that he's given. It's trusting and knowing what he's done for us on the cross. It's about wanting to have him know you not you living through life thinking that you know him only what does scripture say a lot of people will come to me at the end of days saying lord lord right we've done all these amazing things in your name and what does jesus say that he will say to them depart from me you workers of iniquity i never knew you that can be a horrifying thing for us to think about sometimes but it's a place that Jesus teaches, and there's a reason why he teaches that, because he wants us to wrestle with this. He wants us to stop and to, to petition ourselves and to position our hearts in this place of going, does he know me? Because I think that I know him. I've said a prayer, I go to church, I do all these things, but is my heart in a place to where I'm really willing to give up the world, willing to deny myself, for the sake of him. And guys, we wrestle with this. There is not going to be a point in your life where you just get it on the head. Sherry and John aren't going to wake up one day, right, and just go, yep, I figured it out. This is how we do it every day. We're going to deny ourselves every day. It's all about Jesus. No. Many of you this morning woke up and probably had that battle. I've had the battle in the last week. We're given these opportunities, and that's what they are, opportunities to deny ourselves, which means we indirectly go to Christ. But as Trent said, who do you need in the midst of this struggle? You need Jesus. And the, the emphasis, the purpose of this is, is it shows Christ to the world around you. I'm going to have you guys right now turn your Bibles ahead a few chapters to Matthew 16. We're going to be looking at chapters 20 or verses 24 through 26. So Matthew 16, 24 through 26. It's felt like a good like testimonial sermon. So Trent, thank you for the things you said because I'm like, ah, oh, this like flows really well with what Trent had to say. So Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So you can't follow them 
if there's no self-denial. So this is Matthew, Matthew 6, verse 24. Going on to verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I want you guys to think about that. We look at what we just read in Matthew 8. Jesus saying that foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. There's this component and this correlation between putting on the new self, as Scripture says, as Trent spoke about as well, putting on the new self. What does that mean? It means walking as a brand new creation in the newness of life. You are dead in your sins and transgressions, and Christ has given you life. As Christians, are we willing to truly lose the life that we know with all of its luxuries? And this doesn't mean, once again, I'm not saying that you go home, you find some gasoline in a match and go, Josh said I got to lose this stuff, so I got to destroy it. No. But is your heart in a position and a place to where I know in the comparison now of knowing Christ the way that I know him, is this stuff really worth anything to me? What value does it truly hold in comparison to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ? Paul says, I consider this all rubble. And that word rubble in the Greek means a whole lot more, a lot more explicit things than just rubble and garbage. Like it is the lowest of low in regards to stuff. I get I have an opportunity to say poo-poo. It's like equivalent to poo-poo. He just is like, this means nothing to me by knowing this Savior, but knowing this Lord. Like He is God and He loves me. He saved me. This stuff now that I look at, this stuff that I've toiled for my whole life to try to accomplish and to achieve, to get a name for myself, it means absolutely nothing because why? It never brought me a sense of peace. It never brought me a sense of purpose. And many of you in here, as I just heard, can say amen to that. It's like the more stuff that I get, sometimes it just seems like the more issues that I have. Scripture speaks about this as plain as day. It's just a toil. It's a chasing after the wind. I'm going after something that I truly can't grab, but I'm putting all this value to it. The truest value, guys, that we can gain in our life is by simply knowing Jesus Christ. Even to the point where it means we have to give up everything that we have for him period but what about us that have stuff what about us that have these things this this these possessions okay pastor josh is speaking this i'm looking at my bible the bible's saying it as well but he's also saying like i can have stuff and and my heart's in a position to where i I can use this stuff to give god glory but how does this look like in the bible what does the scripture speak about this And Jesus actually gives a parable to talk about this, to talk to people that maybe have stuff and they have money and they have things. I'm going to have you guys turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. This is a parable maybe many of you aren't familiar with. I will sit here and say this, that 
in my reading and studying of this, I have never preached on this parable, but I have heard many teachers and pastors and even theologians say that this is probably the most difficult parable to teach. So I get to take a stab at it. So if I fail miserably, don't call me. No, I won't fail. I, I, I've studied hard at this. But the message and the, and the meaning and the purpose behind this parable is beautiful. It really is, especially for us who live in the West, who have been blessed with things. For us who live in the West that have stuff. We have money. We have homes. We have cars, right? Some of us more than others, right? So I'm not sitting here once again to tell you to go home and to burn all your stuff and, you know, Kaylee and Dawson go find a den to go sit in and Trent and Sarah go find a nest to go park in and get... I'm not saying none of that. But what I am saying is if you have these things, guess what? There's a mindset that you're called to have as a Christian and how you deal with and how you use these things for the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis said this amazing quote, and I wanted to write it down because I didn't want to mess it up, that you can tell how people view the next world by how they live in this one. That means that the way that we are living today is because our minds are set on the new earth and the new kingdom that's to come. So the way that we operate, the way that we um, invest our time, the way that we use the provisions that we have, it isn't for our glory, but it's for God's. Because we understand and know how this all ends. We understand and know how the, the times are going to be consummated and Jesus Christ is going to come back and claim his own. And once again, as we said, this no, no tears, no death, all of those great things have been promised to us. So we live in a sense in this world with that always on our mind. Okay, so I want you guys to think about that. You can tell how people view the next world by how they live in this one. It's kind of an attribute to the fruit that we're called to bear as Christians. So Jesus is preaching and teaching this parable of the shrewd manager. How many of you are familiar with this parable? Few of you, okay? Shrewd is basically a word of just saying that a person has some pretty good, quick, sharp judgment. How many of you in here would say that you're shrewd? Okay. The people with you are like, that's bad judgment. Like, okay. So my wife, I would say, is a shrewd person. She is. Jelaine's very good. She's very quick. Not bad judging. I'm not saying she's quick to judge, but she does a pretty good job at making a quick judgment on a situation and a scenario. So Jesus is teaching this parable of the shrewd manager. And to give you guys context, we see that this is coming at the end of the parables of him speaking about the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, the lost sheep, and all that. We covered this a couple months ago. And those parables really work together, hand in hand. And the purpose of those parables is, is this mindset that we're called to have to, to rejoice in the Lord when someone comes to know God, regardless of where we may even be at in our faith. So someone that you despise, someone that you can't stand, let's say that you've been serving the Lord for X amount of years, and this person that you've maybe struggled with your whole life comes to know the Lord. We can get a little snippy in our spirit about that, right? There's something about us that can be like, man, I've been serving you for 15 years. This person comes to know you and they just seem to be blessed with this, that, and da-da-da. Jesus is putting the heart of the matter at the forefront by saying, your joy just needs to come to the fact that someone's come to know me. That there's another person right now that's going to enter into the realms of the kingdom of God. And the angels are rejoicing over this individual. But coming alongside that, now following about the shrewd manager, there's this mindset and this teaching. Still goes on in the church today. Pharisees taught that 
by the possessions and the things that you had, they were a correlation of God's favor and blessing over your life. So that's why you'd see the Pharisees, they were dressed, right? All this fancy stuff. They were always on you know, the forefront display of everything. And, and people followed suit with that. They wanted people to kind of see the stuff that they had because the stuff that they had was this imagery of God's favor on their life. Once again, this is something that is still taught in the church. It's a perverted teaching, in my honest opinion. Because what you're saying is, is that if someone drives up here in a Cadillac Escalade and they, they have all this nice stuff, big home and all that, man, God really loves them because look at the stuff that they have. What you're indirectly saying is, is those people that Jesus just spoke about, about possibly not having a place to lay their head, what do you think God's thought process is with those people then? You see how it doesn't match? So what you're saying is, is the rich people are blessed and favored by God, but the poor folk, God must hate them. They must have done did something bad in their life, right? So Jesus is approaching this teaching, though, with the shrewd manager. And I even give you guys, if you guys have a pen and paper, I want you guys to write this down. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is kind of the place where a lot of these teachings stem from. It is a long chapter about God's blessings on the people of Israel, okay? He's letting them know, if you, if you listen to my laws, if you do these things, these blessings will come to you, and da-da-da. So the Pharisees are taking that, and they've kind of perverted and twisted and skewed it now to teach it as this burdensome teaching to people to go, if you have all these things, guess what? God will love you more, and it's showing that he loves you more. But something that's not shown as well as when you continue on in Deuteronomy 28, the first part of Deuteronomy 28, it's a real small section that speaks about God's blessings of the people of the nation of Israel by their obedience. The rest of 28 is the curses and the punishment for when they disobey his law. I mean, it's, it's three-fourths of the chapter. But once again, this is a, a perverted misteaching of the Pharisees, which once again, I think in our church today, we take out of context and we try to teach in the same fashion, the same way. Like, I want to have a ministry where people are rocking Escalades and nice cars and all that, because guess what? It's going to show the world that our people are blessed and highly favored. Hallelujah. Amen. And it's like, no, I want people to come into church with this mindset that I'm poor in spirit. That regardless of where I'm at, I give God glory because I know my need for Him. So if I'm digging ditches or I own a business, whatever, I'm doing it to give Him glory. And even to the point to where if I have to give up this stuff, I'm doing it because I know it gives Him glory. And guess what? It's even best for me. Why? Because it is well with my soul. I know the promises that He's established and I know what He's done for me on the cross. So everything in between, as we said last week, is covered and good. You guys tracking with me here on this? So, going into the parable of the shrewd manager, I'll go through this as quick as possible, but I do want you guys to, to listen to this because it does give a great layout for us who have possessions, who have things, but the mindset that we're called to have with these things is a future that's yet to come, a day that's yet to come. Luke chapter 16 says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. It was not uncommon back in the Lord's day, as many people even do these days, that sometimes we can get so much stuff, it's hard for us to manage our own stuff. So what do we do? We hire someone else 
to manage our stuff for us. Okay? This is something that took place even in the Lord's day. Jesus is speaking about this. So once again, a parable here too. Jesus knows that he's going to be telling a story that everyone that's listening is going to understand and know exactly what he's talking about. Okay? He knows that as he's bringing up this story, people will be able to sit down and relate because it's something that's going on in that time. You guys, even in this room right now, can relate to it as well. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be manager any longer. So this manager was not doing his job. And he was fired. Okay? Tracking? Pretty simple stuff so far. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. What some people misconstrued and, and, and mess up with this parable is, is when they read it all the way through, they think as we're going to go in here where the manager or the, the owner gives praise to the manager, that the manager's doing these things to get his job back. And that's not the case. So I want you guys to listen to this again because he says it. So I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So this manager is in a place where he's depraved. He can't dig and he's too proud to beg. What is he going to do? So he comes up with this plan, right? This plan to where I can finally have somewhere to go, somewhere to be, somewhere to have rest, people to know. He called each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Cut the bill right in half. Okay? He didn't tell the owner this stuff, the master, any of this stuff. He just took it upon himself to go find the debtors. He's working out a deal with them. Any of you that owe a debt, if someone was to come up to you and say, well, how much money do you owe in so-and-so? And you say $2,000 and that person goes, well, why don't you do this? Erase it, make it $1,000. Cut it in half, down the middle. You'd be excited, right? So these people, these debtors are seeing the manager come up and do this. So obviously one would assume that there would be a sense of joy, right? I don't owe this individual as much money anymore. And there's some context here and some dispute in regards to what's going on. And, and for you business folks here regarding like wholesale costs and retail and markup and all that. I mean, I've read all these different expositions on this, but I want to just stick to the imagery and the message here at hand. So once again, he said, manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? Depending on your translation here, you guys are going to have some, uh, some different amounts here, some different metrics in regards to how this is being used. A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Let's cut it down a little bit more. It wasn't 50%. A thousand, make it 800. It's getting a deal, right? Mind you, once again, the manager is doing this in his own accord. The master did not tell him to go do this. He's lost his job. But remind, remember, he's too proud to beg. Maybe he has a bad back and can't dig. He's got to figure something out because he has nowhere to go. No one to be with. 
The manager or the master, once again here, must have got word. Verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. His dishonesty must have actually came from the initial part where the manager said, you haven't handled, or the master said, you haven't handled my affairs correctly, you're fired. So obviously there must have been some dishonesty there. We know there wasn't dishonesty going on here in regards to the debtors because he was just cutting them some slack. He was cutting bills in half and, and giving them 20% off, whatever. But the master actually commended him and said that he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. What does this mean? Many of, you, many of you in here can say amen to this, especially in your worldly days. We can be very good, people of the world even, so let's even look at, we'll talk about the unsaved. People are really good at handling their affairs sometimes, business people, right? People are phenomenal with their money and their investments when it comes to the worldly things. Put a little money here, save a little money back here, invest it with this person, hire this person to handle, whatever. I'm going to get some real estate. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And I'm just speaking about people that don't know Christ. There's Christians that do this, but I'm speaking about people that don't know the Lord. Because their things hold such a high value and mean so much to them, they act with this sense of shrewdness. They're pretty good with managing their stuff. How many of you in here, you're Christians, but would say that you're pretty good at managing your affairs in general, right? You have a pretty good hold on where your money's at. You have a pretty good hold on, you know, any kind of property that you own and all that. So what's basically being taught here is Jesus is saying, let's look and compare and contrast. People of the world do this phenomenal. But they even do it, in many cases, better than those people who are of the light. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about, once again, this misconception in teaching that I have to have a bunch of stuff to just simply show that God loves me. That he's highly favored me and blessed me in all the things of the world. But there's no sense of a future day that's yet to come. It's just about now. It's about current comforts. And that's what separates the church from the world. So these Pharisees are teaching this teaching that really aligns with what we even see today in the world is that it's all about what you can acquire when it comes to possessions. That's it. But Jesus is sitting here saying like, no, that's a misteaching of what this all means. Don't be like the world in that understanding. What you're going to have to do is have a mindset of a day that's yet to come. He goes on to sit here and say as well. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth. Some of you folks in here have money. You have possessions. You have things. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, because guess what? Here's the truth of it. Scripture speaks it. How many of you are taking your cars and homes and money with you to heaven when you die? If you know the secret, let me know, because I don't believe that we do. Scripture says we don't. I've yet to meet a person that's passed on that sent me an email that says, hey, I got all my stuff with me. No, they do not. If anything, Scripture even speaks about it, even causes an issue with the next generation, because guess what? You've worked your butt off to earn it. You hand it off to the next generation that's never done anything to earn it. It just becomes kind of this, they spoil it. Let's put it that way. That's a whole other sermon. Okay, But what he's sitting here saying is, I tell you, use this worldly wealth. 
Christians, if you have worldly wealth, if you have stuff, use it to gain friends for yourselves. What does that mean? Have you ever used your stuff as a means of evangelism? Have you ever used your stuff as a means to give God glory? People that don't know him, have you ever used your stuff to help people? Why is that important? I'll tell you. Because this is a way that we can witness to people to where some people come to know Christ through the way that we use our worldly wealth with them. People will actually come to know the Lord through your loving generosity with how you use your worldly wealth. Period. That's why I pray for you guys before we give to give out of a place of joy and not compulsion. I don't ever want you guys to sit here in church and think by the percentage of what you give or how much you give that that's a gauge of your Christianese. It's not. Jesus says he loves a joyful and cheerful giver. You know that you're sowing into something. You're sowing into the kingdom. You could be sowing into someone else coming to know the Lord by taking this worldly wealth to bless them. And when it says you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings, guess what? There's a time and a place where we're all going to go and meet Jesus. And some of these people that you've sown into with your worldly wealth, you'll be sharing the kingdom with them. Because maybe they didn't know Christ before they met you. But maybe you use something that God has given you to give to them to show Christ to them. He goes on in verse 10 that says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Some of you have heard this before. And whoever is dishonest with very little, guess what? They'll be dishonest with much. The Bible speaks truth, guys. This isn't a commandment. This is a concession of truth. We've met people like this. Maybe we sit in the pews this way. Man, I, I struggle with being honest with the little, but man, I really want God to give me a lot. He don't work that way. He knows your hearts. He knows your minds. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, so you seem to be on the side of the spectrum where you got some stuff. You know the Lord. Your heart's with Him. Yeah, you're willing to, to give up everything. You deny all that stuff, as we covered. You got some things. But let's say you just can't unhinge from it. For His glory, even. You can't let it go for the sake of the kingdom. And I'm not saying you're letting it go to be poor. I'm just saying, are you willing to even part ways with it if it means decreasing a little bit for you to increase a lot for him? So what Jesus is speaking here is he's saying, so if you have not been trustworthy with handling this worldly wealth, this stuff that doesn't go with you when you die, as we've all attested and claimed that that's true, how will you be trusted with true riches? Guys, what are those true riches? It's the kingdom. It's knowing Christ. It's the peace that comes with knowing Christ. This worldly stuff is temporal. It's not going to be around. But you're wanting all this stuff, but yet your heart and your mind is in a place to where you don't even want to unhinge from it. Why would God bless you or give you these things if you're not willing to unhinge it for His glory? Because you're not even going to truly understand or respect or acknowledge the world that's yet to come. As C.S. Lewis simply says, you can tell a lot by a person by how they view the next world, by how they live in this world. 
And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Amen. Hallelujah. No one, here's the, here's the, the kicker, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Guess what? You cannot serve both God and money. So I'm in this debate and this struggle and this wrestle. I got stuff. I feel like I just need to hold on to it. I feel like I have to build it up. But I love God, right? Look at my life. This is what the Pharisees tried doing. They twisted and altered this to help kind of coincide with the lives that they were living. How does God, how do I know that God loves me? How do I show you that God favors me? Look at all this stuff that I have. Jesus is like, that's the opposite of what I'm trying to teach you. You love me first. You deny yourself first, even if it means that the money and the world are completely stripped away from you. And does that mean that'll happen? No, it doesn't. But what a place to put our hearts. What a place to gauge where we're at with him, especially today. Because it does start with us coming to him with this sense of repentance. Because he knows your hearts. Lord, I've been idolizing things. I've been idolizing worldly riches. And I'm not doing you any honor. I'm not showing glory to you because I've been wanting to hold on to these things. I don't trust in you to where even if I have to unhinge from it for your glory. And we even put ourselves in this position in a place where we stop and we even pray for more stuff. And we're not even being trustworthy with the stuff we currently have. If you have kids, you understand that narrative pretty well. I love you, Mariah and Wyatt. Like, they do great. But I'm just saying, like, kids in general do this. I did it as a kid. Like, I destroyed my toys. It was this weird thing. I used to, like, my brothers had like $5,000 worth of G.I. Joes and they wanted to sell them. And my parents made them give them to us. Like, when there was an explosion or a fire on the base, this wasn't like metaphorical or an imagery. Guess what? We found hairspray and a lighter. We made this a real deal thing. And my brothers come in in horror as there's these globs of melted plastic all over the bedroom. And what do I dare ask my parents a couple weeks later? Can I have more? God does the same thing with us. Like, you're not even using what you have. If it be little or if it be a lot, you're not even using it in a sense to where it shows me that your real focus is on me and that your real focus is on the world that's yet to come. Guys, I know this is convicting stuff because it convicts me when I read it. It's supposed to be. I want you to stop and go, has Josh been following me around all week? Because this is stuff I've been thinking about. I guarantee I've not been following you. But the word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It literally opens up our hearts and our minds and exposes stuff. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. We tend to view things from an outward perspective, right? So-and-so has this. So-and-so looks this way. They must be legit. They must be awesome. God must love them. 
That is how we view things. How does God view things? It's the heart of the matter. Now, I'll spare you going on anymore, but I ask you guys to even do this. Read Luke 16, verses 19 through 31 this week. A little reading assignment for you. You'll see this scenario played out. What Jesus is speaking and talking about. Luke 16, 19 through 31. About people that have stuff. They're given an opportunity to give some of that stuff for the glory and the purpose and means of God and refuse to do so because they're viewing things outwardly, which is detestable to God, and not looking at things from God's perspective. And what do I mean by that? Living a life where they love the Lord, they're seeking to know Him more and more, they're willing to deny themselves for Him, and their mindset is on a day and a kingdom that's yet to come. So Luke 16, 19 through 31, that is your reading assignment. Amen? I'm going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks for your word, Lord. And once again, I give you thanks for Trent's testimony. Lord, I, I just pray and know that it's fruitful and edifying um, for the ears that heard it. And Lord, I, I pray for a conviction to sit into the hearts of those individuals that are in here today as there is a conviction that sat in my heart as well. The people come to you with an honest heart, a pure heart, Lord, and that you even search the deep and secret things of their hearts, Lord, and expose the things that they need to see, Lord, to be able to come to you with true repentance, a repentance where they recognize where they're falling short, Lord. They turn away from it and they pursue you, all with the trust and the faith and belief that you'll forgive them, that your loving arms, your loving grace will wrap around them and show and tell them that you are their Savior, that you are their Father. And with that grace and that means of grace, Lord, it causes and stirs something in us to continue to pursue obedience with you, as that's a beautiful way to show our love for you as well. So Lord, once again, I just give you thanks for this day. I give you thanks for your word, the conviction of your word, and the reminder of our righteousness through Christ to you. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. You guys talk to some people on your